Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. And thank you for joining us. It's great to have you with us. Uh, you might be uh, listening in on the digital service, listening on the old-fashioned wireless, maybe on the app. Um, could be listening back on demand or uh, on the podcast. However you, we're getting into your ears this morning, um, I hope you're doing well. Um, I'm not alone, as I never am. Well, there was that one time. <laughs> Uh, but not this morning. I'm uh, very happy to be joined by my esteemed colleagues, Dr. Sharma and Neonatal. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to be here. Oh, good morning from the other studio. From the other studio. Exiled. Yeah, we're doing the physical distancing well. Yeah. As has, like, across Triple R, it's been amazing. A lot of broadcasters broadcasting from home and sounding fantastic. Um, and uh, those that are coming in to the studios, we're using model studios at once, but it seems to be going pretty well. Yeah, it's a bit of a strange experience looking through a couple of glazed windows. <laughs> coming through loud and clear, Neonatal. How have you been this past week, Neonatal? Oh, I've been good. I was actually... Um telling Dr. Sharma before the, before the show that I uh, got swabbed recently. Uh, I experienced what we've all been talking about. Uh, I woke up with a mild cold earlier this week and um, went down to the lovely Royal Melbourne Hospital and was um, had my brain tickled. Your brain tickled? Uh, it does feel a little bit like getting your brain tickled. Oh, the swab. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, the swab. I don't know what panel B was thinking then. It's a, it's a <laughs> I was mildly aroused. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's a public hospital. It's, uh, no, yeah, no, service, no extra services there. <laughs> um, no, talk us through your, your experience of it, because there will be people who aren't you know, ready to jump onto the testing for yeah. various reasons. Yeah. Set us at ease. Well, I was actually quite nervous going, but it was a very, very um, easy experience. I, wasn't, I wouldn't call it pleasant, um, but I'd call it easy. Uh, you go in and you do a little QR code on your phone, answer a, a questionnaire, and they say yes, you're you're here to get you're um, you're able to get swabbed today. Go in, get your blood pressure checked, your oxygen saturation checked, um, and then you sit down, and then they take you to a, a separate cubicle where uh, you, you get a some blood taken, which I believe is for some antibody testing at a later date, mm-hmm. and then. Um, you get a cotton swab, basically, um, just rubbed down the back of your throat and through your nose into the, the nasopharynx. Taking about how long all up? I was in and out within probably 20 minutes. Uh-huh. Um, and had the test results. I went in at 8.30 and had the test result back by 5. Incredible. It was just the easiest experience. Um, I, was, I was actually very nervous. I knew exactly what I was going to experience. But that didn't stop me being nervous. Um, but you know what? I'll, I'd go back. I'll, I'd be a repeat customer. <laughs> <laughs> At these prices, yeah. The next pandemic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, next pandemic. This pandemic, get me back in. Yeah. Just while we're on uh, uh, personal engagement with these sorts of things, have you had uh, this season's flu vaccination yet? I have. Um, I'm, I was lucky enough to get it uh, through one of the, the public hospitals as um, part of the healthcare worker scheme. But uh, it was... Um, 
I definitely got it, and I think Dr. Sharma would definitely have gotten it. Yeah. No, no, I have not. No, no. I'm. Uh, so that's the thing. I'm not affiliated with a hospital. I am a right. GP, a sole trader. I'm on the wait list at my local GP clinic, just like everyone else. Still waiting. How um, long is that wait list, as far as you know? I do not know. I, I've asked, and uh, they get asked all the time. They just don't know. It's a, it's a supply issue, and... You know, there's so much demand, so just sitting, waiting like everyone else. But the good news, I suppose, with the flu is that because of social distancing, we've seen such a sharp fall off in the numbers of flu. In fact, if you look at the charts, it looked like it was going to be a particularly bad year. Uh, and suddenly these lockdowns come and you look at the graph and boom, yeah. the numbers fall right the way down. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't get the flu vaccine. I'll, I'll be actively seeking it out yeah. uh, in yeah. any free time I get this week. Uh, but, you know, it's, it just goes to show how powerful these completely non-drug, non-pharmacological interventions have been. Dr. Sharma, just to curse me, taking gratuitous advantage of uh, your role as a GP and knowing how these things work. That's why I'm here. Um, say if you're a GP in a one-horse town out the back of Whoop Whoop, do you self-inoculate? Uh, yeah. I mean, I've injected the flu vaccine myself into my own Delta, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you need to make sure of all the other precautions, which is the fact that there is, um, I suppose, uh, adrenaline and all these other things around for in case of severe allergic reactions and someone is around. Yeah. Sure. Um, but otherwise, yeah. Where's, where's the line drawn, even just in a legal sense, let alone, say, a, a clinical sense, um, Around when has it become self-medicating? Oh, I mean, this is a this is a funny line that gets moved along and redrawn, you know, probably every few decades, so to speak. It really wasn't a big deal, I'd say, going back, you know, a few decades, depending on the kind of therapy it was, or even tests that you might order for yourself. But now, generally speaking, uh, the expectation is that even for in theory, quite mild things, you will go see uh, your own GP or a medical specialist. And it's something, something certainly I've done for myself. Uh, I think as doctors, we've all kind of fallen into the trap of self-diagnosing. And uh, you know, once you get caught out, like I have personally, yeah. uh, now I'm pretty good with these things. You know, I, I see GP, I see specialist. Yeah, yeah. From time to time, the media will pick up on um, a bit of self-diagnosis type, uh, self-medicating type stories where um, GPs or hospital staff are, are accessing the, uh, the medicine cabinet a bit much? I think in hospitals it's a huge concern just because of the, the access you have to particularly dangerous and addictive drugs. And uh, so there are some uh, drugs that are kept on the wards and there's these systems that they are in this locked cupboard and uh, you know, a specific person has the key, you have to check things in, check things out. Because, yeah, without those regulations and rules, it can be something that's abused. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we've got, uh, uh, a big, big show coming up, um, this morning. Um, we'll go to the news shortly and there's some, uh, late breaking news that we're going to pay some attention to, but we've got, um, a couple of fantastic guests. Dr. Sharma, you'll be, uh, t- introducing us to our first guest this morning. Who we got lined up? We have Professor Chris Edmund, uh, Professor of Economics at Melbourne University, and we'll be discussing the economics of lockdown, a very polarising subject. Yeah, yeah, that whole, um, do we put the economy first or public health and um, how do we even organise our thoughts to make those decisions, huh? That's it, isn't it? It's like, how do we go about 
solving this very complex issue. Who do we talk to? Yeah, uh, yeah. Everyone seems to have an opinion. Oh. Uh, but yeah, unlike when we're talking about viruses and things, I, I don't think people are seeking out expert opinion on these things. Yeah. And, well, we've got the expert here today. Yeah, yeah. No, that, I'm really looking forward to that. I know for myself, I think I, I know where I land on it fairly clearly, but I don't pretend for a second that it's an easy thing to do, like, you know, that there aren't a lot of complications to consider in the in the thinking. That's exactly right. No, I'm not sure if the, uh, the the way the public debate is being played out actually reflects, firstly, that complexity, but also what the uh, what the consensus position is of a lot of experts in, in this field. Yeah. We're, we're getting a lot of outliers, getting a lot of voice and a lot of volume in this debate. Really looking forward to that conversation. And um, I've uh, invited a guest on, uh, Professor Axel Bruns, from uh, QUT, uh, here to talk us about conspiracy theories in the time of COVID-19. Um, I'm so excited for this. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, there's, you know, I'm a bit of a conspiracy theory <laughs> junkie, you know, in, in, in entertainment terms, but there's a very serious side to it. And I think uh, in, in moments like these, and we saw some protests um, in Melbourne last weekend, so we'll talk to uh, an expert in that field as well. Um, looking forward to that, and that'll be coming up uh, later in the show. But first, as tradition dictates, let's uh, choose out some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. All right, news time. Um, and uh, neonatal, you uh, you were you were drawing our attention to some late breaking news. I was uh, in here a bit earlier and I hadn't heard it, but uh, something caught your ear. And yeah. tell us yeah. what's going on. So uh, recently, states and territories around Australia have announced they are starting to lift uh, coronavirus-based restrictions, allowing people to have a slow and graded return to normal life. And as of this morning, if I can uh, pull up the, um, the announcement, I think Dan Andrews has announced that by, uh, as of June 1st, uh, pubs, restaurants and cafes will start to have a slow uh, return to normalcy with uh, up to about 20 people um, in any uh, establishment at uh, a single time. And this will get expanded in the coming weeks. Now, this should be excellent news. It should have made me happy that I'll get the opportunity to see family and friends in person, in pubs, in restaurants, and not over Zoom. But I've actually found myself quite anxious and worried about the news. I was actually recently out on a run um, and saw a group of eight kids playing basketball and found myself with only fairly negative thoughts about uh, what I would have previously heralded as an amazing example of social exercise. Mm -hmm. Now, apparently, I'm not unique in experiencing these feelings. This strange phenomenon that I've been uh, experiencing is known as reverse culture shock or re-entry syndrome. Wow. <laughs> now, re-entry syndrome. Yeah. And oh. it's it sounds cool. I want that. Is this yeah. astronaut? Well, I've got it. <laughs> You're the coolest guy here. Uh, well, it's been described heavily in people returning from expeditions in Antarctica. Uh-huh. Um, where... They're having to re-enter a new world where the sun um, shines and sets every day and it's not dark for six months. Right, I see where you're going, um, yeah. So 
the the road to adjusting to this new world and society we are living in is not likely to be straightforward as proven by these Antarctic expeditioners, where some of them take up to 12 months to feel like they're living back, living their normal life again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now Dr. Kimberly Norris, a clinical psychologist and expert on Antarctic reintegration, advises a slow return to normalcy is the best strategy. So basically it's saying don't go out and see a different group of five people back to back to back um, because you think you, have, you need yeah. to make them for lost time or need to start rebuilding those social connections. Everyone will have had a different experience over the past few months and people will need different things to get through the turbulent period of adjustments. She also warns that people may be different uh, from the individuals who remember pre-coronavirus. They've had a lot of new and sometimes scary experiences that you were not a part of and you weren't able to share on a regular basis. And basically, we simply just can't return to life as we know it pre-COVID. Um, I think this will be a very hard realisation for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. I really, really am interested to see how this plays out. Like you, I'm pretty nervous about mm. this um, stage three. Not, not unsupportive of it, but nervous about it. I think I, I imagine people... Well, nobody's ever done it before for a start, right? Mm. So we don't necessarily intuitively know how to do this. Um, so there's going to be a complication. But also I think this, the psychology that you're pointing to is going to play its part. Just um, uh, one thing that occurs to me as far as like if I'm personalising it a bit about this idea of re-entry, people have been using the concept of work from home, you know, that that's, that's what's been happening. I, I don't think it is working from home. I'm, when it, when um, I realised I was going to be, you know, homebound, I thought, well, you know what, I, I, working at a university, I can work at home a lot, right? I don't have to go to campus except for the classroom stuff, really. Um, and I thought, well, it will just be those hours added on to what I would be at home for anyway. It's not like that at all, actually. Because, Interesting. Because you're... you're um, I, I realise how much the uh, casual interaction with people really changes, whether that's just casual interaction by catching the tram into, into the campus or something like that. Um, it, it, the, I, it's, it's trying to work at home and you are working home, but it's not, it's not like you've just extended your hours at home at all. Mm, I mean, that's a thing. Humans are gregarious by biological nature. Yeah. And if you, if you remove that, you, you're, there is something radically different happening on a conscious, subconscious level. Yeah. Uh, so that adjustment has been difficult for a lot of people. It's, it's something that I found a little bit difficult too. Uh, 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 something I gather a lot of people are experiencing is when they're watching uh, television now or a movie or something like that and they say, see people um, you know in a, in a casual hug or just shaking hands um, seeing crowds in movies and things like that we actually are experiencing that visually uh, consuming it visually in really interesting ways yeah I've certainly found myself recoiling I think I saw someone cough on Netflix yesterday and just <laughs> This had this visceral, full body reaction I, I had on my lounge. It was like, wow, I, I didn't think I'd react that way, but here we are. They didn't cough into their elbow. Is that what you're no, saying? It was disgusting. <laughs> um, Neo Nodal, um, this idea of um, you know the the social psychology of what you, it's, what's it called reentry syndrome. Yep, reentry syndrome. Um, and you were talking about exercising. Were there any other examples or scenarios that were discussed in um, this expert? 
Uh, so it's it's really just going to be um, how we how we experience returning to uh, life pre COVID. So a lot of her examples were based around social interaction mm-hmm. um, and gathering in large groups. Uh, it'll be um, it'll be a lot of it will be experienced when these pubs, restaurants, and cafes do reopen, mm-hmm. and how we have to visualize. Uh, going into large spaces again with a lot of people, yeah. uh, it'll be it'll be terrifying for a lot of people. I think uh, it'll you know by I think uh, June twenty two, um, Dan Andrews once said that uh, establishments could have up to fifty people, okay. and then uh, second half of July up to a hundred people. I couldn't imagine right. being in a room with a hundred people. Yeah, no, not at the moment. When when does the twenty come into effect? So the twenty is June first. June first. Yep. Okay, so I'll, just, I'll just do that again for the listeners. So yeah. June first, cafes, restaurants, and pubs will be able to reopen their doors to serve meals to up to twenty customers. From twenty second of June, it's uh, increased up to fifty, and during the second half of July, it's up to a hundred. Yeah. He does stipulate that this is uh, reliant on Victorians continuing to get tested when they show even the mildest of symptoms. So go and get your brain tickled, uh, <laughs> and we have to see continuous uh, decrease or a, con- a steady state of low yeah. numbers in the state. It's going to be really interesting to see how uh, venues do the 20, mm. you know, manage the 20. Um, I'm, I imagine there's going to be have to be some kind of door control in well, some way. I saw some news this morning of um, New Zealand who have been doing this, I think, 10 patrons in a cafe at one time with uh, Jacinta Ardern getting turned away um, at a cafe. <laughs> Uh, oh so dear. some pretty strict reg- regulations over there. Goodness me. Well, some good news. I'm sure people, are, you know, even if we are bracing ourselves for some re-entry syndrome, we're, we're probably really looking forward to it. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You know, with the lockdowns being eased now, I think we're looking back and realising just how difficult it's been. But not just the lockdowns themselves, just the, the conversation around it has been incredibly polarising. COVID-19 has been framed as a death match between the economy and lives. And now that might seem like a very crass reduction, but that's the conversation we find ourselves in. But even a very humane approach recognises that preserving jobs and incomes and industries is essential for human well-being. And in that way, Australia's early response to lockdown appears to have been some kind of trade-off. So is it actually worth it? And how do we even find that out? Now, this is where we have the entry of the economists into the debate. They help us navigate trade-offs of complex systems all the time. So we're honoured to be joined by Chris Edmund, Professor of Economics at University of Melbourne today. He received his PhD in economics at UCLA in 2004 and was assistant professor at Stern School of Business at NYU. His commentary in the media on COVID-19 has been incredibly clarifying. He's one of the authors of an open letter from 289 economists urging the government to not relax social distancing measures prematurely. So here he is joining us through the social distance of the telephone, uh, Professor Chris Edmund. Thanks for joining us. Great to be with you guys. So, Professor, one thing we can all agree upon, no matter which side of the debate a lot of people are falling on, is that Australia's early response has been costly 
everything from expanding our healthcare capacity to the various fiscal measures of payments and loans and exemptions. So we're clearly seeing a lot of money spent. But can you flesh out and just illustrate for us what has the cost of all this been to our economy so far? So you're right that it's been very costly in the sense that there have been a lot of outlays and, and certainly associated with the shutdown, uh, a lot of job losses, a lot of lost income. But when we think about the costs, I think we, the cost of the shutdown policy, we have to kind of distinguish between um, what was actually happening and what would have happened absent the shutdown, the so-called counterfactual. So as we can see in countries all around the world, countries that had less, even kind of less severe lockdowns have still gone into recession. So the, the cost of the lockdown is not the recession, it's the extra slowdown in economic activity over and above that, that would have been happening anyway as people kind of voluntarily um, socially distanced. Like if you look at the data, it's very clear that people were stopping going to restaurants, they were stopping going to bars, they were stopping going out even before the shutdown hit. So there was going to be a big decline in economic activity anyway. And the cost is the extra decline in economic activity, the extra decline in wages, the extra increase in unemployment, over and above that that would have happened anyway. And what I and other economists have been arguing is that um, what we should see is that those costs that we're bearing from the lockdown, that, that extra reduction in economic activity over and above that that would have happened anyway, is investment in our future economy. Like Our best hope for the economy recovering in the near term is to comprehensively, uh, as best we can, get the pandemic under control, right? get it close to elimination levels so that people have the confidence to go out and about and to do normal activity, and then release, and then in the meantime, doing everything that we can to support workers who are dislocated. Right? So there's, nobody is saying like we should just like leave people and like let them suffer the consequences of the lockdown, but that that lockdown was an important part of putting the economy in a position where it could recover. And absent that lockdown, the things were only going to get worse. You were going to have both a recession and a massive public health crisis. So in that sense, we were arguing that it was like a false choice to think of it as choosing either looking after the economy or looking after public health. Right, so you seem to be describing this scenario where if we did not have some form of lockdown, you end up with this kind of worst-case scenario where you've got both disasters to now deal with that are guaranteed, this health and economic disaster. That first point, however, you're making is very interesting about how there was a lot of slowdown happening anyway, mm. uh, even potentially without uh, a lockdown. So is that something we're seeing here? Because it's, it's something, something we've certainly seen in Sweden, which is famously not locked down as strictly as its neighbours. And it was very interesting to see a, a preprint about a few days ago talking about, when comparing to, say, somewhere like Denmark that did lock down, you're seeing kind of similar uh, falls in, in this kind of aggregate spending happening. So is that something we'd seen here as well, this slowing down of the economy before lockdowns? We were beginning to see signs of it. If you look at kind of sort of semi-anecdotal evidence, things like you know, open table reservations and stuff like that, you definitely were seeing a decline in activity before official measures came on board. But, um, but we were relatively early in terms of, uh, it, you know, if you think about the earliest restrictions, things like restrictions on travel, and then even kind of uh, restrictions on sort of like a sort of formal uh, shutdown in kind of late March. So we hadn't really started to see like the true sort of what you might call like the decentralised or the private sector-led lockdown uh, really getting a chance to, to get underway. But I think it's pretty clear that it would have happened. 
Right? I mean, everything that we sort of see in countries around the world that have taken a kind of more hands-off approach to lockdown to suggest that they've had the big uh, declines in economic activity anyway, and they've just had worse health outcomes on top of it. Professor Neonel here. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. I um, would like to move a little bit to the future with the Australian government being given two options. One, a uh, harsher lockdown where we aim for elimination or the what they appear to have chosen, the more prolonged, uh, except a, a few cases, except a, a longer uh, staged lockdown and uh, re-entry into normal economy. Uh, what are your thoughts on the elimination versus a staged relifting? I, I don't see this distinction quite as clearly as you do. I mean, I, I think that um, you know it's true that at the margin, as you release uh, the lockdown, you're going to necessarily get some more incidents. And uh, you know, obviously, you know, the policy has to be such that you're not thinking like of a once and for all decision. Okay, we've we, we've relaxed. Like if mm. you know, if things start to you know, if, if, if incidence starts to rise you know, precipitously again, you're going to have to see a return of those um, of those uh, of those policies that we had back in uh, in late March. Like, and, and so the the whole goal has to be to do this carefully enough that that does not happen. Mm-hmm. And whether you want to call that elimination, or I, I use the term near elimination, because I'm not sure that anybody is really trying to drive uh, incidents to, to zero, but to a handful of cases that are not kind of spiking uh, in ways that, that run the risk of, of, of uh, you know, going out of control. So it's that, like, we know that, like, in the, as we sort of saw in February and early March, that at the beginning, things can trundle along uh, quite quite slowly, and there can be cases, but it, you know, it takes a little while for that exponential growth to, to take off. So we can be monitoring, we can be doing everything we can to kind of track, trace, isolate, quarantine, um, you know, the cases that do arise. But if it was the case that, that those policies failed, then we'd have to return to something like uh, what we had in, back in late March. So we definitely, definitely want to avoid that. That's why we should be being very careful. Right? It's the, whole, the, the goal is to not ever have to have another sharp lockdown, but instead to uh, control the release and to be investing enough in tracking, tracing, and being ready to kind of quarantine so, uh, to the extent necessary. So with today's announcement from Dan Andrews of uh, trying to, um, uh, with his staged and staged lifting of restrictions starting from June 1st, what are your thoughts on um, reopening pubs, restaurants, and cafes? I, I'm not opposed to it. I, I just want it to be done very, very carefully. I was a little bit surprised. I mean, I haven't fully absorbed the, the announcement this morning. I was a little bit surprised at how quickly they seem to be moving to, you know, by, by mid-July to a fuller opening. But, I mean, if, I, I don't want to second-guess, like, the public health expert's advice. If, that, if the expert advice coming out of public health is that that's appropriate, given where incidence is right now, then... then you know, I, I defer to that expertise. I'm, I've been in this debate all along trying to make clear that economists should be deferring to that advice and should be using their, our expertise as economists to help people understand that the economy, you know, overall will be better off if we beat this thing. And it, it's a kind of a, a false distinction, as I've said in other, in many times, to think of that we can somehow um, 
protect the economy at the expense of running of letting this thing you know run a bit looser. That that that's just not the right way to think about the problem. Um, so I'm a little bit to, to answer your question. I'm a little bit surprised at how quickly they're moving, but, but I don't have the expertise to say that that's wrong. Professor Edmund Panelbeater here. Um, just by extension on uh, where neonatal was going and drawing our attention to the um, staged um, uh, unlocking, so to speak. Um, yeah. There's a distinction to be made, isn't there, between the economy that we're trying to protect, protect this monolith, this macro thing, yeah. um, and different parts of the economy that are affected in different ways by um, something like this COVID. So um, cafes and businesses um, and pubs and, and that's those sorts of businesses, they're often what, you know, uh, technically uh, understood as small business, right? Um, and they're yeah. a, a real generator of a lot of um, day-to-day economic activity. From your perspective, how do you distinguish between these different parts of the economy and formulating a response with that in mind okay so there's a few things there so so everything you say is perfectly true and even as we kind of sort of see the kind of andrew's announcement this morning you, you can kind of see that there are big chunks of the economy that are not going to benefit right so you know while we have like essentially like no international mobility you know there are large parts of the australian economy that are going to not benefit right from the release of, of the shutdown so things like tourism so international tourism Things like um, all, all of the, uh, you know, the, the higher education sector. I don't like to talk my own book, but I'm, you know, yeah. I'm a professor. Um, you know, like it, it, your university is going to be suffering for a long, long time to come. Yep. Um, so it's definitely true. There's a lot of employment in those small businesses, in sort of cafes and restaurants and hospitality and so on. And hopefully that, and that's also where a lot of like the, as you guys probably know that, we saw like the April labour market data come out um, on Thursday last week, and we kind of saw just how badly those sectors are kind of you know shedding jobs, shedding shifts, and hopefully a lot of that can come back. But I think it's sort of it's clear that there are going to be other sectors of the Australian economy that are going to be depressed for quite some time, even if even if you know cafes and bars and restaurants come back sort of over the next sort of three four months. Um, so there's a lot still to kind of be uh, be watching very carefully, and that's in the kind of like the, the favourable scenario where we keep like the pandemic under control. So everything here is all of this discussion is like contingent on keeping that thing like at very very low levels because it's just like yeah. we do not want to be have a repeat of what we've just been through. Sure, um, and given the the nature and the characteristics of the Australian economy, you've pointed to um, say tourism and education, obviously very big uh, export industries for Australia. Um, how much of uh, our assessment of uh, decisions we need to make domestically should we um, uh, account for international behaviours? Uh, in, in what sense? In, in terms of like the, the fact that the other countries do not have, like the United States, do not yet fully have the pandemic yeah, under control. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, I mean, we can't really relax, um, you know, our international restrictions. Like, you know, I, I would love to be going to conferences in North America, um, <laughs> you know, uh, but in the next year or so, but I, I doubt it, right? I mean, it's just like we can't um, do that yet. And that's going to be, I, mean, I, I was being a little flippant there, but, you know, that's going to be hurting large chunks of the Australian economy for some time. And it's like what we can do about that is, is really not clear. Now, luckily, um, we have large parts of the Australian export economy that aren't really people dependent. So, you know, we might have our, our own, you know, concerns about like a reliance on coal and reliance on sort of mineral exports and whatnot, but those things aren't, going to suffer in the same way. So there, there are parts of, of, the, sort of the trade or export-oriented economy that will be sort of still online, and, and, and we should, I guess, 
from a macroeconomic point of view at least, be sort of grateful for that. But, you know, I, I think anybody who thinks that just as the shutdown, like in this favorable scenario, but we seem to have the pandemic under control and the shutdown is relaxing and maybe in sort of six weeks you can feel like in many respects life has returned to normal, we are still going to be in a very, very deep recession. Mm. Right? It's, we are kind of coming out of the most of a very unusual, abnormal economic crisis that was basically sort of engineered by this health emergency. But as we come out of that, we're going to be in a more, for want of a better word, normal economic crisis. Mm. And an economic crisis of the kind that many countries experienced uh, in 2009-2010. We, we got off a little bit, bit, bit more lightly in 2009-2010, but many countries had a very, very deep recession. And we are still going to be looking at something closer to that, even as the lockdown eases. Right? So, like, it's true that cafes and bars and whatnot will start to be able to reopen, but you know, these are, there's a lot of marginal businesses there. And so a lot of those marginal businesses, even if like people you know, come back 90%, yeah, that's not enough. A lot of those businesses will never come back uh, because 90% of, the, of, of you know, the customers is not enough for them to be viable. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be yeah, looking at a, at a severe recession even once the lockdown is over. And, Professor, I suppose to ameliorate some of this suffering that you've outlined, we've seen various fiscal measures of payments and loans and exemptions. And yes. you know, this, we're talking about... $200 billion of kind of support yes. provided that seems to have popped out of the levers of monetary policy. I guess if you can give us just a broad picture of, you know, we understand this money's you know, now occurred, so to speak. Where has it actually come from and is being truly actually borrowed from? And more importantly, when it's actually spent as support, where does it go? Okay, so there's a lot of things there. So... Short answer is that the Australian government is borrowing, right? So the the, the Australian government is um, is is selling bonds into the bond market, and those bonds are basically being bought by superannuation funds, some international pension funds, some other you know, agencies, and uh, indirectly uh, in the secondary market, not 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 directly by by the Reserve Bank. So those bonds are being bought. Those bonds become assets to the people who are buying them. Um, so you're you know you're in if you have a superannuation fund, the chances are your super fund is buying some of that debt. So that, but that debt has been created by the Australian government and will have to be serviced in over, over coming years. Um, and there's a lot of it being issued. But you know, Australia is in a very favourable fiscal position going into this crisis. So unlike so many other countries, we didn't have a lot of government debt, certainly not relative to the size of the economy. Uh, interest rates are very low. So in my, from my point of view, like this is what government is for in some sense, like being able to borrow in, in large amounts in a true, true emergency, right? This is why economists like me would typically sort of preach some notion of fiscal prudence in more ordinary times, right? So that you have weapons, tools to use in, in a true crisis. So th- this is that true crisis, and we shouldn't be shy about using those tools, not at all. And it's kind of heartening to, to hear that, yeah, in theory, the, the systems we have, uh, uh, that's what we're supposed to be prepared for. And uh, it's kind of good to, to get some confidence from the expert that we're in a good position to tackle all this. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. That was uh, Professor Chris Edmund, Professor of Economics from Melbourne University. Thanks so much for your time, Professor. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks, guys. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. We're turning our attention to uh, conspiracy theories in the in the time of uh, COVID-19. Many uh, of you will be aware of the protests that you saw well reported in the um, in the media last weekend. Protests uh, in uh, in downtown Melbourne. There was a motley crew of people variously pointing to the role of Bill Gates in the COVID nineteen pandemic, Big Pharma, five G bioweapon development mishaps and even Hillary's emails got a mention there at one point there were hashtags galore <laughs> on the on the on the banners and signs at the protests um, to help us understand uh, how conspiracy in the time of COVID-19 is uh, unfolding we've got joining us Professor Axel Bruns Professor Bruns is professor at the Digital Media Research Centre at Queensland University of Technology He's the author and editor of many publications with his current work focusing on the um, user participation in social media, um, Twitter and, um, and Facebook and, and a whole lot more. And where the implications are for our understanding of this in uh, contemporary public life. Um, you can seek out many of uh, the works of Professor Bruns uh, on the internet and, um, and take a deep dive into into all things conspiracy, fake news and uh, media bubbles. But we're lucky enough to have him on the phone this morning. Welcome, Professor Bruns. Good morning. Wonderful to have you with us. Um, as you probably just heard in the intro, we, we were really keen to talk to, with somebody after last weekend's um, protests and uh, no better person than yourself. Could we just start, though, before we start getting into the very details of COVID-19 conspiracies, can you just uh, set us up with a, a, a broad-based understanding of what a conspiracy is? I guess one person's conspiracy is another person's fact, so we needed that distinction. Yeah, that's that's right. Of course, and uh, of course, there's a there's a very broad range of of conspiracy theories around, uh, particularly now online. But uh, we also should note that conspiracy theories themselves, of course, predate the internet itself by by some margin. You only need to look at all the conspiracy theories surrounding, you know, the the death of John F. Kennedy or the moon landing and so on. So uh, people have have been going on about trying to find the real truth as they see it for a very long time. And very often that's born out of, a, I guess, a mistrust or uh, some level of, uh, of uncertainty about what's really going on in the world, a mistrust of politicians, mistrust of any other authorities. So um, there have always been some people around who simply don't believe the official narrative, the, the official story, and feel that there must be something more hidden behind all of this. And now, of course, uh, it's become a lot easier for them to get together on on the internet overall via social media and to share their their little insights or little ideas about uh, what what really is going on, and from that to construct a, a much more um, fully formed, fully fledged narrative of um, you know what they think really is behind everything that's going on in the world. Um, and what what are the preconditions for a conspiracy theory to arise? Um, I'm 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 guessing from uh, a little f more familiarity with your work that it's got something to do with an information vacuum. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's really that people are trying to fill, I guess, the the space that's left open. So particularly during a time of crisis like this, or many other crises before as well, when there genuinely is uncertainty about what's going on, or we don't really quite know exactly why, you know, something has happened, why, you know, now the, the coronavirus crisis is happening, or perhaps why a terrorist attack has happened, or some other major crisis has happened. Um, people are, of course, trying to, trying to work out, well, what's going on, particularly perhaps if they're being uh, directly affected by it, if they're concerned, scared, um, worried about it in some form. Um, and again, if, if there's also a lack of trust in the authorities, uh, so if you already believe that, you know, whoever it is, Donald Trump or Scott Morrison or Boris Johnson or Angela Merkel or whoever else is not telling you the truth, then of course you're going to, to think, well, m- maybe there's something else behind it. Maybe I can try and find find some, some real truth behind all of this, uncover the real truth and share it with others. So, um, yeah, people are trying to fill that that empty space ultimately that, that the authorities might be leaving, particularly, of course, also at the start of a crisis like this when genuinely there's a lot of uncertainty around. And Professor, in terms of those preconditions, uh, we've found that there's certain just personalities, some, some type of people who just think more conspiratorially. Look, I think it's it's a uh, it's difficult to to generalise too much here, but of course, um, yeah, people who are already uh, perhaps having a, a low sense of trust in in others, particularly in the authorities, people who already feel that they have a um, a, a good mindset for uncovering you know hidden details and so on, people who have a bit of a sort of a, um, a almost a detective mindset, I suppose, if you like, um, trying to trying to uncover yeah what they think of as the real truth. So you've got to be somewhat suspicious already of the world, of of the people around you, perhaps. Um, and that that really might push you into that direction, and generally perhaps also just disagreeable with um, the, the the standard narrative, the, the the received understanding of what what's going on in the world. Now, Professor, uh, just want to get your thoughts on how the uh, the mainstream media are contributing to conspiracy theories, and what you think that they the mainstream media media's role is in the the spread um, and the uh, prevalence of the current uh, conspiracy theories yeah there, there is a if you like there's a kind of a vicious circle here uh, in, in some in some ways that ultimately involves the mainstream media as well um, with these sorts of conspiracy theories of course much of it starts on the fringes you've got fringe groups that already have particular um, contradictory views, views that contradict the mainstream uh, understanding of the world. So you've got people who believe that um, there are chemtrails or that, or that vaccinations are bad for you <clears throat> or any other um, uh, fringe beliefs like that. And they very often just stay on, on the fringes, really. They, they might circulate those beliefs in their own discussion groups and their Facebook groups and Facebook pages and everywhere else where they might might find each other. But Largely, that that doesn't affect the mainstream of of public debate. Where it reaches the mainstream is often with the help of others. So you've got um, mainstream media perhaps picking up on this to some extent. Um, We've seen this in the the case of the corona crisis, particularly um, with some tabloid uh, media also picking up on, on these sorts of stories and just reporting them perhaps as a um, as something that's that's kind of a little bit weird and a little bit funny and might just be clickbait for people um, that that just attracts readers to to read these sort of strange stories from the the edges of the web, if you like. Um, 
but in doing so, of course, they end up amplifying these these messages and 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 really make them much more visible to ordinary people than they otherwise would be. Um, we've seen this in in the Corona crisis with some of the debate around, uh, you know, whatever role 5G might play, a 5G mobile phone technology might play in um, causing or making making the virus worse. Of course, there's nothing to these stories, but there are people who believe very fervently in them. And uh, some of those stories end up being picked up, for instance, by the Daily Express in the UK, a tabloid newspaper. So they published a story about these strange beliefs, but... In doing so, they embedded a video of a conspiracy theorist talking about um, this this conspiracy theory for for minutes, and so all of the the readers of the Daily Telegraph suddenly would be exposed to this sort of content. And then, of course, once we end up with official denials of these stories, when when the authorities have to start to respond to them, then mainstream media need to cover that as well. So suddenly. All of these debates, all of these discussions, all of these conspiracy theories uh, have, have a much larger audience in the world, and, and that's really when they reach a large number of people. Uh, Professor Bruns, is there any distinction to be made uh, between um, the various conspiracies around COVID that we're experiencing at the moment? So you've alluded to the 5G, um, there's the Bill Gates theory, there's the bioweapons theory. Um, are these just uh, the same thing by a different name or, uh, or is there something different about them? I think the underlying pattern here is, is for many of those that there are existing, pre-existing conspiracy groups out there who are already um, against vaccination, against 5G, skeptical of Bill Gates and his foundation. Uh, you know, they have their particular pre-existing views and beliefs that they pursue. And with many of these, it seems to me that they're now just connecting this, kind of retrofitting their conspiracy theories onto the coronavirus crisis itself. Um, so no longer now are you um, skeptical of vaccinations, but you're saying, well, but uh, the coronavirus vaccination that eventually will come will be particularly problematic. Or you believe that there is some sort of secret world government, and now you're pointing to the World Health Organization as part of that world government. Um, so in many ways, there there are these, these existing belief systems, and whatever happens, whatever crisis comes along, um, gets embedded into these belief systems and gets used as further proof that, that these conspiracy theories are in fact true. Um, I haven't seen a great deal so far that is genuinely new about any of these conspiracy theories. Um, you know, there, there are some, of course, that are uh, directed against China or directed against the U.S., but even those are, are very often pre-existing kind of views that just get fitted onto coronavirus now. So I think there's, there, there are genuinely these, these longer-term communities that have particular um, ideological, political, whatever views, uh, and whatever happens in the world just gets fit into that belief system ultimately. Professor, you've made a great point earlier about how even the act of reporting these protests can have this almost kind of backfire effect. Uh, you know, of course, there are the overt ways, of course, which is the embedding of the actual original conspiracy theory videos, etc. But just a mere mention can be an issue. What are your thoughts on how we can ethically and responsibly report these things without making the problem worse? Look, it's a, it's a genuinely difficult challenge because increasingly these uh, events and uh, the activities of uh, conspiracy theorists more broadly are designed ultimately to make their views more visible 
to mainstream audiences via the mainstream media. They're in some ways exploiting, if you like, the the tendency of mainstream media, well, the, the task of mainstream media to report what's going on in the world. So they create things that are going on and then expect the mainstream media to report about them. And, and in, in some ways, they've already won at that point because if mainstream media choose not to report about them, then the conspiracy theorists can say to their own followers, well, look, they're suppressing us, they're ignoring us, they're censoring us, um, so clearly we're on to something. And if mainstream media do report about these protests, then they can say, ah, now see, there's a groundswell of belief in what we believe, so clearly we must be on to something. So um, whichever way you go, in a sense, you, you, you can't win. I think the only... Um, sensible way for mainstream media to really respond to this is to, yes, to report, not to give these events uh, overdue visibility. So I think if there's only a few hundred people protesting in front of, you know, Parliament House, then say that and report that and don't say that there's suddenly a groundswell of opposition against lockdowns or whatever. Um, and of course, to, to juxtapose the reporting itself also with the necessary debunking of, of some of these arguments. Mm. So to really uh, push back, if you like, immediately against any wild claims that some of these protesters might be making about whatever um, whatever they might believe in, um, make sure you, you provide the alternative view, the, the official view, the, the authoritative view, and point out why these protesters are wrong um, in pushing a particular conspiracy theory. Um, so in some ways, journalism needs to get away in this kind of context from simply being an, an objective, disinterested reporter of what's going on in the world and actually take the side of mainstream society and protect ordinary citizens from being, well, infected ultimately by these conspiracy theories. Professor Bruns, um, it's been fantastic speaking with you. The time has flown. We're coming up to the end of our uh, time at the show uh, this morning. You've given us a lot of food for thought. I've um, made sure that our, our social media has your um, details on it, um, but you also have a, a, a blog that people can go to, an academic blog. Can you just um, share that with us? Yeah, sure. I, I tend to publish uh, a lot of the work that I do via my, my site at snurb.info, S-N-U-R-B.info. Uh, that's, uh, that's particularly for, uh, for presentations, publications and so on Wonderful. Uh, by myself and my colleagues. Wonderful. And that's at the uh, Digital Media Research Centre. Yep. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. Um, Dr Sharma and Neonatal, a pleasure as always. Wonderful to have had you with us. Uh, lovely to be here on this uh, lovely Sunday morning. Everyone out, go outside and get some vitamin D. Yes. <laughs> Responsibly. <laughs> and uh, thank you also to Professor Chris uh, Edmonds of the University of Melbourne talking to us about uh, public health versus the economy. Uh, wonderful. You can catch um, uh, Radiotherapy on podcast or on demand via a variety of platforms. You know the drill. Thanks for joining us this morning. Um, we look forward to having you again next week uh, with Team Dr Nick, I believe, uh, on Radiotherapy. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.